0: Welcome to Animals to the Max. I'm your host, Corbin Maxey. This show is about animals and the people who dedicate their lives to them. And welcome everybody to another episode of the Animals to the Max podcast. I'm your host, Corbin Maxey. What's up, everybody? How are you doing today? You guys, we are going to be talking about sea creatures today. I am so excited. We're going to be talking about coral reefs, and we're going to be talking about pygmy seahorses. This is, oh my goodness, such a fascinating interview. We actually, this is kind of embarrassing, but we haven't really covered many sea creatures on the Animals to the Max podcast. And I did something on my Instagram. I just asked a question on my stories and I said, hey, what type of topics would you like to discuss on the Animals to the Max podcast? What animals would you like to learn about? And a few people said seahorses. And I found myself the perfect seahorse expert. And so we're going to learn all about seahorses today. And we're going to learn about coral reefs, On the program, I have marine biologist, conservationist, photographer, Dr. Richard Smith. He is the author of the fantastic book, The World Beneath, The Life and Times of Unknown Sea Creatures and Coral Reefs. I will put a link in the show notes. This book is fantastic I have not been able to put it down my wife and I actually were recently snorkeling we went snorkeling in the Mesoamerican reef which is the second largest barrier reef in the world and I literally took this book with me and as I'm literally flipping through the pages now I'm looking at it I actually have salt water on a lot of the pages so I wouldn't recommend necessarily taking it to the ocean like I did but I that's how obsessed I was with this book I promise you are going to love this interview just to learn about the fascinating life of, you know, animals beneath the waves. And I'm going to be honest, I really just asked him about coral reefs. And in the beginning of the interview, I just asked him, like, can you just give me an elementary school answer? Like, what is a coral reef? We know they're living animals, but if you Google it, sometimes the information gets, I know people get confused. Like, what is it? And he just gives an awesome explanation. We then go into his work with pygmy seahorses, which they don't, they're so tiny, they don't even stretch across a dime. And yet he was able to study these tiny animals and learn about them. He actually studied these four seahorses, which I find it hilarious. Uh, One of his, Wendy, one of, uh, I guess one of the scientists with him named them Josephine, Tom, Dick, and Harry, these pygmy seahorses that are so tiny. And he studied these seahorses and learned so much about them. So you are going to love this. We talk about, you know, of of course, we talk about seahorse reproduction, how the males give birth. We talk about the seahorse dances. This is just such a fascinating interview that I know you are going to absolutely love if you are so into this i encourage you highly highly encourage you to join our patreon because dr smith or rich as he wants me to call him joins us for the after show the patreon only after show and he goes more in depth of his dives his favorite places to dive and it's just like i said a bunch of awesome information there uh the patreon if this is your first time listening and you're like, what's a Patreon? Patreon is just a membership site. It's a way that you can help support the show for $5 a month, $10 a month. You support the show monthly. It goes to web hosting fees, new equipment, and you get bonus material, bonus episodes. After each show, I do a bonus after show, and you get to literally hear more of the guests talk about their experiences. It's a little more relaxed. Not that my interviews aren't relaxed, but you know what I mean. You just you just, you just, get the whole thing. It's for hardcore Animals to the Max fan. So I encourage you to check that out. That is patreon.com slash animals to the max. And I will include a link in the show notes. All right, let's get to it. Let's talk about the coral reef and let's talk about pygmy seahorses. Dr. Smith, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you. I have been obsessed with your book. I actually was recently um in visiting the mesoamerican reef and i took this book with me
1: oh amazing did you dive and stuff or did you snorkel or i
0: actually snorkeled just i i i snorkeled and i apologize because your publisher sent me the book it's a little wet on the edges but i feel like that's okay <laughs> right
1: That's fine. That means that it's been used for what it's supposed to be used for.
0: Yes, absolutely. Well, I actually initially reached out because what I did is I asked our listeners, I said, what animal would you like to hear about? And uh, we had a few people request seahorses. So I did a little digging and I found you and I reached out and then your publisher sent me this book and I was like, oh my God, you'd be a fantastic guest to come on the show.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it kind of grew up a bit
0: more than just seahorses, hopefully, but amazing
1: sea creatures nonetheless.
0: Absolutely, so tell me, tell my audience a little bit about yourself. Where did your passion for marine animals begin?
1: Um, actually, it wasn't always marine animals. I guess probably like you a bit. Um, I was always an animal nut from like a little kid. I ha- like was running around the garden collecting creatures. Um, I had all sorts of weird pets and there's like a zoo around the corner. That was amazing that I was always there and always finding out all the creatures they had, but I was always investigating the weird things. So I wouldn't just be happy to know something about something obvious, I'd want to know every last thing about every species of that group, and then it just kind of snowballed from there. Um, so, I, but I think it's probably natural history has always been what's drawn me into this whole thing, rather than just kind of scientific interest. It's always been real natural history. Um, that's really been making me super passionate but then i started diving when i was 16. um i always wanted to be a zoologist actually so after like as as soon as i knew what the word was i went actually i don't think i probably knew what the word was i heard the word and i wanted to be that it sounded amazing so i wanted to be a zoologist Um, but then eventually i went into a forest and when i didn't see animals i kind of got a bit frustrated you actually had um i heard your podcast about um snow leopards and how the chap had seen only two in his whole life. And that would not cut it for me. (laughs) I needed to see the animals I was studying a lot. And um, after I'd been first scuba diving and you see like the huge, crazy diversity and abundance of animals on the coral reef, I was just hooked immediately. Um, So yeah, that was kind of a bit of my early journey anyway into this whole crazy world.
0: Yeah, and I love your book because you say something in the book, which I love, is that you don't just want to focus on, I don't know, more of the iconic keystone species. Well, not keystone species, but, you know, I mean, when we think of the coral reef, a lot of times we think of sharks or maybe we um, think of the colorful clownfish. But you actually wanted to uh, kind of shine the light on organisms that a lot of people don't think about, you know?
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, yeah, like you say, I think people love sharks and sea turtles and whales and things. Um, and they should, because they're amazing. But there's, that's just like the very tip of the iceberg, really. So I kind of got interested, first of all, in sea slugs, which sounds kind of terrible. Um, <laughs> but you'd, maybe you've seen the pictures in there. They're amazing. So they're not like the slugs that you see in like eating your lettuces. They're like all colors and shapes and sizes. They're like butterflies of the ocean. And there's just the most incredible diversity of them. Um, and I got into those when I started really diving in Asia. Um, and you'd see like maybe a dozen species, but then the next dive, you'd see a whole different dozen species. So I really got into those and they're, some of them are small. They're just a few millimeters. So I was finding ones that had never been described and that kind of captured my imagination. I was just 18. Um, so that just kind of set me off looking for more unusual things and realized there's so much more out there that's small on the reefs that just has still never been discovered. Um, and I just was just in awe.
0: Yeah. And can you just, for someone listening and please don't take offense to this, but if someone's listening and they're like, why should I care about a sea slug? <laughs> I mean, I mean, on you know what I mean? <laughs> like, can you just, I mean, yeah. and please, and please, I hope you don't take that as an offense, but someone might be like, Oh my God, no, no. why are we talking yeah. about sea slugs? Why should we care about sea slugs?
1: Well, I mean, I'm obsessed with parasites too. I just think everything in the whole ocean and on our planet, every piece of life is important. But it just makes the huge diversity that we have on this planet so incredible. You know, there's millions and millions of species. I think it's great to protect those big ones. Maybe if you can protect, you know, something like a whale, you can protect all the habitats that that whale lives in, which protects all these other species too. But um, yeah, I think the, all these animals have evolved over millions of years, it would be remiss of us not to be saving mm-hmm. them. Mm-hmm. I think it's just such an intrinsic value in those species.
0: Absolutely. And everything just has a place. I mean, you know, um, yeah. even, yeah. yeah, even animals like that.
1: So let's talk about slugs.
0: Yeah. And even <laughs> slugs. Let's talk about yeah. coral reefs. Okay. Can you give me an elementary school answer of what is a coral reef? Cause they are living, but I know a lot of people get confused. Cause they're like, what are they? Like, how can you just like, yeah, yeah what is a coral reef?
1: So yeah, coral reefs are those things, mostly in the tropics you sure. have in the U S you have them around like Florida and the keys and Hawaii and things. Um, but they basically are built on um, hard corals, which are like a rock basically. and the Like a rock, most of it's dead, Um, but the very outside edge of it is living animal tissue, but it's only a couple of millimeters. Um, And on that surface is tiny little things, a bit like jellyfish, that make up a colony that cover that whole rock. Um, And that's basically what a hard coral is. Um, And then every day, those little jellyfish, they kind of wake up and then feed on um, plankton and things. And as they do that, they open and lift up a little bit as they swell up, and they'd secrete a tiny bit of stone, basically. So this kind of whole organism is growing and kind of moving towards the light because those little um, jellyfish need some sunlight as well to grow. Um, But they sort of form the basis, like the trees in the rainforest, they form the basis of the coral reef ecosystem, which is the many thousands and millions of species that rely on coral reefs.
0: Yeah. And I love the photos in your book. And by the way, listeners, I will include a link um, where you can purchase this book on Amazon because I love how colorful it is, but you like have a zoomed up version, or um, a zoom picture of the mouth of a coral. And it's like, what? It just, it blows my <laughs> mind. You know what I mean? It blows my mind. So, yeah. so, okay. So I just want to get this straight. So the coral reef, it's made up of all these little organisms, right? That are jellyfish.
1: Yeah. And they're kind of colonies. So colonies. they, mold, okay. and each one is just a few millimeters a so, um, in size. Okay. I'm um, looking and at they them form now. like colonies with millions of those little jellyfish. They okay. cover the surface of corals. Like
0: yeah, that exactly. One right there?
1: So they're, okay. Yeah. Um, and then those are just on a massive scale. So the great barrier reef in Australia, for example, you can see from space, Because, but it's built of tiny three millimeter sized coral polyps. It's incredible, but just millions and billions and trillions of them. Um, Okay. But altogether, they make up a coral reef.
0: Okay. And then they, they, so they they eat and then they deposit hard sediment. And that's like, that's the rock part of the coral.
1: Yeah. But I kind of guess the key to the whole thing is, um, so there are these tiny little jellyfish But within the cells of the jellyfish are algae Um, because, you know, like if you've ever, well, you've just been to a um, coral reef and the water is really blue, right? Mm -hmm. So when you look into the water, you can sometimes see the bottom, maybe 90 feet below, um, which means there's nothing in it. It's blue because it's absolutely devoid of organic matter, um, which makes coral reefs all the more incredible because there's this huge diversity where there's no food, as you would imagine. Um, So these jellyfish aren't only feeding on like plankton and things they also have these tiny little algae which are like um, plants basically so they use sunlight um, that sort of little jellyfish has within cells the organism uses sun uh, sunlight um, which produces food for the little jellyfish to grow and then the jellyfish produce its waste products which act you know, like you give horse manure to your garden. Okay. Um, that's what the jellyfish is doing to those algae. So it's got this crazy symbiosis, um, which is how it, there's like no food you would imagine. And Darwin was confused by this whole thing. Um, but eventually uh, you get these, crazy ecosystems for me
0: yes and I was visiting uh, we were in Mexico in the Riviera Maya which was beautiful but I as I was reading your book looking out at this white sand beach pristine blue waters you were saying like you just mentioned in your book that it you know something that might be so desirable to us is not so much there's not much uh, there's no food like it's devoid of nutrients and I thought found that so interesting because what we consider paradise really isn't for a lot of animals in the ocean.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, they now this ecosystem has evolved in such a way that that then creates this basis for all these other species to live. you know, so there are species that eat the the polyps of the corals, like butterfly fish. that's the only thing they eat, and they're very specific about which polyps they eat. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are also other ones that use the physical structure that the coral creates. Um, so everything has its own little niche or niche, I think you say.
0: Niche niche, yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, Anyway, so they all have their little thing that, um, they all have their place in the reef, really.
0: Yes. So a coral reef is almost the equivalent of a rainforest. Yeah, it's the
1: rainforest of the sea, really. Yeah, they're very similar, except when you're on a reef, there's just life everywhere. I mean, there's life, obviously, everywhere in a rainforest, but you don't tend to see the, you know, there's a bird in the distance or there's a, some sort of insect that's hidden away. Whereas on a coral reef, there's literally fish will swim around you. And I've been in schools of fish millions strong that literally I, well, I could probably not touch them because they're speedy. But um, yeah, it's, it's just amazing. It's an amazing ecosystem.
0: Yeah, if you're listening and you've never snorkeled, it is something you have to do at least once in your life or twice or a million times, I think it is. <laughs> It was amazing. And I'm so embarrassed to say this, but the only other time I've snorkeled um, is in the uh, Seychelles Islands, which is a really nice place, but that was the only other time. So um, it was like my second time on a reef. It just, oh my God, dude. It just, I wish, I mean, we were there because it was in a national uh, marine reserve. We were only allowed to be there for a certain amount of time. We were with a guide. And so, but I could have spent all day in that reef.
1: Yeah. Well, I've done nearly 4,000 dives, and I don't imagine getting bored. <laughs> yeah,
0: so, 4,000 yeah. dives. What was your first dive like? Did you feel like this is my calling in life, like this is what I'm meant to do type of a feeling?
1: No, I absolutely no. <laughs> nearly the opposite. <laughs> um, I learned in in a British quarry. So um, it was November, so the water was four degrees. There was frost on the ground um celsius that is so and it was just horrendous we were wearing a dry suit um i couldn't see anything i saw one little crayfish in four (laughs) dives um so but then i was doing that because my dad and i were heading to see some friends in australia and we'd planned to visit the great barrier reef so that kind of all kicked it off but we had to get through the training in the uk um but it was almost too much. It was really, really horrendous. No, but you, you could see only like a foot in front of you. It was really horrible.
0: Well, it sounds bad for you, but isn't that pretty rich waters, right? Wouldn't you say? In well, that area? it's a
1: quarry. So in terms of species diversity, there's not much. I mean, not much. of course, every every water body is important. each sure. It's got crayfish and there's a few. Oh, oh Corey, I'm sorry.
0: fish. I, I was thinking about just oh. around England and stuff, you know what I mean? Or around that area. It should oh, be pretty yeah, diverse. Yeah, no, so ours was, was
1: like a landlocked, um, it used they, it just was a huge landlocked man-made lake. Oh, basically. that sounds horrible. Okay, yeah. Yeah, no, that was horrendous. <laughs> um, and, no, and the British waters is awesome. Um, I don't do it that much because I am a bit of a worse, so I get cold quite quick. <laughs> so, Are you serious? Um, <laughs> I, I went snorkeling with basking sharks in Scotland. That was pretty awesome. Um, and this summer, because I couldn't travel at all, I went um, diving down in the south coast of the UK and saw this nudibranch that's the, basically the only the sea slug. Um, mm. That's the only place in probably Europe, I think, that you can really reliably find it. So oh. stuff like that I love. Just uh-huh. was awesome.
0: So and you went with your dad to the Great Barrier Reef. What was that like, that first experience of seeing the, uh, yeah. the largest reef in the world?
1: So if we forget that my first dive was in a quarry and then we <laughs> pretend that my first dive was on the Great Barrier Reef. There you go. That that was much, yeah, that was just incredible. And then it was, yeah, so I was 16. I was very lucky. Um, but then it, yeah, set me off on a completely different path of my life. I did go on to um, do my degree in zoology, um, which wasn't so marine. But after that, um, yeah, moved into the marine world.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you, do you have that first like encounter with marine animals? Like when you dived in the Great Barrier Reef that sticks out, like, did you see a sea turtle? Did you see, or did you see your, did you see your famed slug that sticks out in your (laughs) mind? You're like, this is what I want to do. I want to write a book. I (laughs) want to.
1: I remember something that really does stick out, which isn't a great story is I saw my first shark, um, which was a gray reef shark on a night dive. I think it was my first night dive actually. Um, But a gray reef shark's like two meters, six or seven foot long, Um, which was good. But I just had, it's just done the most terrible disservice, the Jaws movie um, to sharks. So even like I loved animals, but I was like, oh God, is the shark, am I in danger? Um, Now I've completely obviously realized what an amazing thing it is to see a shark and dive. I've dived with hundreds of hammerhead sharks. and. (gasps) and tiger sharks. I've literally swum between dozens of them. Um, and now I love that. I absolutely relish it. But I think we've just got some of those innate fears, I guess. Um, but I remember being pretty terrified of that.
0: Yeah, have you ever... Go- Let's go on to hammerheads because that is amazing, by the way. Uh, were you nervous? Because I can hear they can be pretty aggressive. I heard, uh, what is it, bull sharks, tiger sharks, great whites, and hammerheads. Are those like the four species that are mainly... Um, I mean, I hate to say this, but, I mean, attack humans, which I just want to say it's very, very rare that they do so. You're more likely to be killed by a cow or lightning, but, you know.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's really, there is very, very tiny, tiny chance of anything. But actually, hammerheads, there's, um, I forget how many species exactly, but over half a dozen. Um, I think you're thinking maybe of the great hammerhead. I'm thinking which of the is,
0: great one, Yep,
1: It gets to like seven meters long, but... Um, I was in the middle of Scallop, Tamaheads. They're maybe 12 foot, maybe a bit similar Um, in the Galapagos Islands. Um, And they're not, they're really skittish actually. Um, So you have to kind of, I have this thing where if you breathe, where you wear a regulator to breathe underwater, right? So Mm -hmm. it's in your mouth, and when you breathe out, it causes like those bubbles to come out because you're breathing. But that if you breathe out quite freely, it comes out as this huge, really loud cacophony, and it just scares everything underwater. So I always breathe out really, really carefully through my nose. And with hammerheads, you have to do that because they're so, so skittish. Um, they're really not dangerous at all. They're, they're absolutely terrified of us. So you really have to be calm and quiet in the water, stay as low to the rocks as you can, and um, then they come all around you. Um, it's really, really incredible.
0: So never close calls with any sharks. You never thought like, oh, I mean... just nothing at all where you felt a little uncomfortable?
1: No, I mean, I have respect for the ocean, but the animals themselves are not really scary to me. It's more like I've been in some incredibly terrifying currents.
0: When the ocean just
1: drags you downwards, Um, I've been smashed into rocks, and you just don't know where you're going to end up because you you can't swim against some of these currents. Um, So that sort of thing is more, that scares me more than the animals. But... Um, There was a time in the Solomon Islands, we saw a saltwater croc on a dive. And although I didn't fear that it was going to attack me, I didn't, I don't know what it's like, like, I just explained with the um, hammerheads, I I know that they're skittish, and I know how to get them closer. And if I breathe out, I know they're going to go. But I didn't know with a saltwater croc, how to do what it what its behaviour or anything like was like, apart from the fact that I probably don't want to be too close to it. (laughs) We found it in a in this lagoon on a dive that was back behind the reef. Um and it was basically backed into a cave. So I thought, I'm probably just gonna leave that animal to its devices. I've seen it, that's amazing. But some of the others did potter in and got some photos. I I didn't. I left it.
0: How big was the crock?
1: Um Probably similar size to your chompers. I want to
0: say. <laughs> <laughs> chompers. Oh my God. Can I just say something? I love your accent, by the way. Can you say chompers one more time for me? Chompers. Oh, yeah, I it love it. They're quite different, actually. Don't they? No, I love it. We have a friend named Claire from England. And anyway, she always pronounced chompers name like that. And I love it. She always asked me, how's chompers doing? <laughs> <Excellent>. <laughs> <gasps> uh, so so yeah. choppers is six and a half feet and Sony, my male is ten and a half feet so is this more six and a half feet
1: yeah it wasn't huge to be honest it probably was six and a half foot
0: wow that's still yeah oh i think i would way rather be around a shark in the water than a saltwater croc hands down dude
1: yeah yeah i think that that's the conclusion i came to I think but so. it was cool to see, nonetheless
0: yeah so if someone's listening right now and they have never snorkeled before but they are so fascinated by your interview where would you what's like the number one place you'd recommend for beginners what is what, what is your favorite place for beginners where maybe they could see an abundance of life
1: well i'm based in the uk so i think for us the red sea would be mm. probably easiest but that's for a coral reef so i think wherever you have water if you're next to the ocean or even mm-hmm. a lake or something it's good to get some practice in. go and see and there's amazing animals, you don't have to see the rarest or the most abundant. But anywhere, like I was saying in the UK, there's amazing stuff to see. But if if I were in the US, I would probably head to the Keys or I mean, Hawaii, I've never been to Hawaii, I'd love Mm -hmm. to go. But um, I would imagine that's a good spot because you can just go from shore, you can have a put your mask and snorkel on and your fins. Just be careful, like not to touch anything or stand on the corals. As I was explaining, they have that living um, surface all over them. But yeah, I would say one of those spots would be best. Mm
0: -hmm. Okay. Okay. And even if you're not a good swimmer, right, there's still, I mean, where we were snorkeling, you could go and there's only like two, three feet of water. I mean, you know, and you're in a life vest. That's what the tour guys had to do and see people of all different types of swimming types out there.
1: Yeah, and I think also give diving a go. Um, It's really not as hard as it seems it could be, and people are kind of sometimes worried about being a bit claustrophobic or whatever. Um, But I actually personally feel more vulnerable when I'm snorkeling than if I'm diving. Really? Because I feel like I'm just part of it then. I'm just one of the other creatures. Um, Animals look at you and they acknowledge you, whereas if you're splashing around on the surface, I just feel like... You're just something else that's alien to them. And I don't know. I I think personally diving's just incredible to really get that interaction.
0: I've never been diving. I have to go. I I really, really need to. Yeah, you
1: definitely, you'd love it.
0: I loved it. I, I didn't even want to have that stupid life, life jacket on. And I'm so sorry. I shouldn't say stupid. I know it saves lives. But our guide was just like, of course, he didn't have a life jacket and was like swimming around like this graceful fish. And you know what I mean? And I'm over here like, like you yeah. said, flopping around with my GoPro, which, by the way, I thought with my GoPro that I was like shooting Dave and Attenborough planet earth type footage (laughs) i went back and looked at it it is horrific like it's all shaky like it just did not (laughs) i know i only got a few uh good clips to post on my youtube channel and a few uh yeah and anyway so it's just funny when you're down there but but... it doesn't
1: need to be it not everything needs to be david attenborough does it it's just reminds you and shares that diversity and amazing animal encountered isn't it but
0: yeah 100 yeah, percent. and i would almost like and i had the gopro attached to my wrist because our guide said that if you attach it to your mask it's a little shakier i don't know if i'd agree with that no, after definitely something. you'd agree with no that? definitely you, you yeah, you'd agree 100%. with your wrist over your goggles yeah because really? you look
1: around you'd end up feeling seasick if you watched it back people might disagree but um oh. from my experience yeah yeah um just holding it as still as you can is definitely yeah just holding it, probably. But if you're not used to being in the water, maybe putting it on your wrist.
0: That was not me. Speeds, yeah. It looked. Yeah, anyway, <laughs> that's all good though. That's all good. I'll, I'll take but a that couple. After a
1: first go, that's fine. Yeah, that was your practice.
0: Yeah, but that was that. That was our practice. Let's just uh, for you know, let's talk about the animal. The reason why I first reached out to you in the first place. <laughs> the seahorse. Yeah, because sea yeah, you've discovered. A few different species and you've discovered, look at this. And I wish audience you could see once again, I'll put a link in the show notes, but you've discovered some amazing species of seahorses that people didn't even know existed that are like what the size of a pencil eraser. It's crazy.
1: Yeah, no, they're tiny. They, this, that one, they just showed the picture is, um, Satomi's pygmy seahorse. Mm -hmm. Um, they don't even stretch across a dime coin when their tails stretched out. Um, yeah, they're really incredible. So, um there are obviously all the seahorses. The biggest one reaches a foot long when it's stretched out. Um but I study pygmy seahorses, um which are a group of there's eight species. They're really teeny tiny little beasts. Um, the first one was, they're really cool though. Um the first one was discovered in 1970 just by accident. So, um there, there was a researcher in New, New Caledonia, just off Australia, mm-hmm. um, who was going down to collect a gorgonian coral, um, which is a huge. They get to the size of like a, a car windscreen. Um, they're beautiful fan-like corals. You might they're kind of stereotypical that if you imagine a fan-like coral, mm-hmm. they live only on the surface of those. Um, the coral is kind of purplish or yellow or pink or orange. Um, and they covered in tiny little bumps those corals where their polyps open up those little like jellyfish things i was saying they open up and they filter feed Um, but the researcher was collected one of those gorgonian corals for the museum collection in newmia in new caledonia so he collected it off the reef and the story goes he was bringing it up um, to the surface um, and then noticed that on the surface of that gorgonian coral was a tiny tiny seahorse Um, which was the first anyone had ever seen of of these creatures. Um, Those ones are just about um, their length similar to the diameter of a quarter. And those are the biggest ones of the pygmies. But then, so that's one species. And it wasn't until after the turn of this millennium already that the other seven were discovered. Um, So it's quite, they're really, we don't know much about them. And my research at the time was the only research that had ever been done on them. Um, and I studied that one, which is Bargibant's pygmy seahorse and Denise's pygmy seahorse, which is another one that lives on those corals. Um, but then there's now other ones that I've named that are, they just kind of live on, on the reef. So,
0: yeah, I uh, love I love this line in your book. It said, I was amazed at how nature has condensed all the organs needed for life into such a minuscule package. The fish has the brain gills and heart it's just it blows my mind it's so tiny
1: but what actually really blew my mind is i did my phd on these guys Uh um so i spent quite a few years studying them no one's well they've been kept in captivity once successfully at the california academy of sciences Um, and they collected a they had a gorgonian which is the limiting factor which they'd had in in captivity for five or so years they'd been feeding that that had been growing that had got established Um, which was the prerequisite um, that had been set by the top aquarist at the Cal Academy. Mm -hmm. So once that was established, they then collected a pair from the wild, brought them in, and um, they kept them successfully for a little while. Um, But so that's the only time ever in history that they've been kept in captivity successfully. So all of my field work was in, I had to go to the field which sounds terrible. I had to go to lovely coral reefs and beautiful <laughs> beautiful spots in the world. Man. But it was my choice to study them. Um, so, yeah. So anyway, I studied their behavior and things. Um, and it was just incredible. So I, like you were saying, they're so tiny. But although they also have the tiny brain, the tiny heart and everything, they also have the most elaborate, incredible behaviors, which no one expected at least let alone me um for instance i studied one group um that lived on the house reef of the place i was staying so i would go and see them many times throughout the day um i'd dive onto the reef go and find the same gorgonian because they spend their whole um, lives on on one of one single gorgonian so you know that if you go back you'll see the same individuals day in day out which was just so precious to go and see every little piece of their lives unfolding. Um, And it turns out, um, there was one female living with three males on this Gorgonian. And kind of what had led me down this path was, um, I was looking for a PhD. And um, the one I was going to start was looking more into reef diversity, but that fell through and I was kind of bummed didn't know what I was going to do. Um, And I was on a dive looking at a group of uh, group of pygmy seahorses. um, And I knew that they were monogamous a lot of research has been done on seahorse reproduction, um, and males and females are are monogamous for at least each brood. So they don't um, mate with anyone else at at least whilst the males pregnant and the male gets pregnant as well. There's a lot going on here. (laughs) Um, So I was looking at a group of pygmy seahorses on this reef. Um, And there were three individuals and I was kind of interested to know what happened with this kind of spare wheel. So there would be a male, a female. And then what was this third one going to do if they were monogamous? What was going to happen? So fast forward then to my Ph.D. research. um, And I was looking at a group that had three males living with one female. So it was perfect to investigate what they were doing day to day and who was mating with who and what was happening. Um, But it turns out that the the males were fighting like crazy. Um, They were like strangling each other all the time. They used their tails to strangle each other. Um, They would thrash around. I was really nervous one of them was going to break at one point. Um, But it was really just amazing. And watching every day, it would be like an alarm clock would go off um, as dusk fell. And they'd all um, converge on the same little spot on the gorgonian coral that they slept and did their social interactions and things so they would all be there and then the males would try and strangle each other and uh, the female would look upon this um but then i would come back with these incredible stories telling my friends at, who at the resort that i was staying the guides and i'd say well and i was a proper scientist you see so i'd be like one two three and of four did this. number one did this And my friend Wendy just got so livid one day. She's like, no, they're not one, two, three, and four. They're Josephine, Tom, Dick, and Harry.
0: Um, (laughs) Yes, go, Wendy. I was just going to ask you if you named them. Like, perfect.
1: I didn't. So we have Wendy to blame for that. Thank you, Wendy. Yeah, and then it suddenly, like, this story unfolded. And it was like a soap opera. Um, But it was incredible because Josephine actually mated with both Tom and Dick um, alternately during the male's pregnancy so she would mate with one of them on day one Um, she'd transfer her unfertilized eggs which would then go across into his brood pouch which in pygmy seahorses is is inside the body because they they're so tiny they have these certain adaptations for being so tiny Um, he fertilizes them as they go into his pouch Um, and then he's pregnant for two weeks Um, but then seven days later she would mate with the next male Um, and then he would be pregnant for two weeks and she was basically once a week mating and the males were pregnant for two weeks Um, but that was Tom and Dick but Harry just never got involved he watched and strangled (laughs) other chaps um, but he never managed to have any kids of his own during the couple of months that I was studying them but it was just incredible to have that amount of detail into their lives and something so tiny to have such an elaborate life. I think, like we were saying about people study whales and um, sharks and turtles, and we know that they have elaborate lives, but we don't imagine that something as tiny that you could fit a couple of them on a dime, you know, would have such an elaborate life. We just imagine they're a bit like an insect that goes about its business and doesn't, I don't know. I think it's a bit of a human thing, but.
0: Yeah, so if, if I'm listening right now, how and I'm, I'm in the car or wherever you listen to this podcast and you're wondering, okay, so they are so tiny. They can barely stretch across a dime. How are you s- studying them in the coral reef? Are you like using <laughs> a magnifying glass or can you like tell us what you're doing Are you just, well, just standing there, you know, just looking at the coral for hours and hours and hours?
1: I should start that. I mean, I was young when I was doing this, okay. so I had good eyes. Good eyes. <laughs> Cause you really do need good eyes. Sure. Um, they are tiny. Um, but it really does help that they live in the same spot, so um I would go every day multiple times a day. I'd go to the same gorgonian. I knew that's where they would be. Um, they'd tend to have the same little places that they'd hang out on the Gorgonian every day um during the day as well. Um, but then you look for them, just you sort of your brain starts getting a bit of a sort of search image going and it's then much easier to find them. Um, but they're super well camouflaged. So those Gorgonian corals are pink or whatever. And the, and the pygmy then I found during my research, um, it settles that when they're born, they float around in the ocean for a couple of weeks. And at that time, they're black in color. And they're about three mil long. Um, and when they settle to a Gorgonian coral of their own to establish a new little colony, it takes five days for them after they've settled to change color to match exactly in color and texture the Gorgonian that they've settled on. So, their just their camouflage is incredible. So, when I would go down to study them, I'd spend like ten minutes finding each of the four of them on the gorgonian, and then I would start my research.
0: That is a... whilst
1: hanging in the ocean.
0: <laughs> and how you said the gorgonian was about as big as a car windshield.
1: Uh, they get to about as big. That's about the biggest. But I found some pygmies were on the size of like a magazine they would be on a gorgonian that big but i found like also a part of my study was to look at how much space they used and i found that one of one male on that gorgonian only used the area of like three post-it notes his whole life was spent so cool
0: so you're just literally just what's the longest you were down there obviously you were in scuba What's the longest you were down there looking at this little community of, let's see, Tom, Dick, Harry, and Josephine. How long were you down there checking their little...
1: Well, it was like a, it was part of the scientific research, sure. so I try and make it sound accessible, but um, they were in like 30-minute increments, and I would sometimes okay. do back-to-back to try and get the... Um, like at dusk, there's a lot more social behavior, so sometimes it would span over an hour or so. Um, but then it would be in 30 minute increments. But I mean, I've done dives that have been a couple of hours long just for fun, looking for stuff. And...
0: So were you, okay, so this is where my mind would go, but were you ever nervous that like a fish was going to come by and like take out Josephine or like a predator? Like, <laughs> I mean, seriously, cause this is what I, I know you studied many pygmy horses, but it sounds like this group is what you, you know, you, you, you went down daily to check them out. Were you ever nervous? Well, They don't
1: have any real tree predators. I mean, I think that's what's driven them to become so tiny and so camouflaged. Mm. They really are really impossible. You don't just see them. So like they're predators. There's there's no predators really looking for them. They'd be a terrible dinner. They're tiny. (laughs) Um, But at the same time, like I did see when the males were fighting and they were thrashing about. That made me nervous that um, something might come along and opportunistically take one of them but it didn't you, you and ne- i think i'd have flicked it
0: yeah i was gonna <laughs> say jim <laughs> that's so funny what is what is the lifespan of a pygmy seahorse because i'm assuming tom dick harry and josephine are no longer with us
1: no sadly not hopefully their next generation are yes um, hopefully. well yeah i'm sure we'll end with that but um Well, the bigger seahorses don't even live that long, actually. I think the oldest now is um, about seven or eight um, of those bigger, proper seahorses, we'll call them. Mm -hmm. Um, But the pygmies, I think, probably a year or two maximum. So they're not long-lived. But what was also incredible, I watched them giving birth on numerous occasions. But Tom, for instance, would go off and give birth first thing in the morning. Then he'd swim back to that same little sleepy spot with Josephine. And they do a quick little dance, and then mate again immediately, so within twenty minutes of giving birth, um, he was pregnant, and he yeah, that males do get stretch marks when they give birth. he <laughs> ah, was huge, ah, like a balloon. Ah. Um, so it was just really incredible. Um, but the those social dances and things is what all seahorses actually do, and it's really important because. Um, they'll the male and the female that are mating will do a little dance every day, so usually dawn, um, and that helps them to really synchronize their system. So the female will um, do a dance in a certain way and the male will do his dance and he will maybe say, OK, I'm getting towards the end of my pregnancy now. It's time for you to start thinking of getting some eggs ready. And she'll then go through the process of it's called hydrating the eggs, where she starts to swell in size. So I could tell when Josephine was going to be mating because she'd get a bit bigger and um, those eggs are getting ready inside of her. Because if she made them just willy nilly, then he may not be ready and she might have to like, eject them, which is really a lot of energy for an animal that size. So but for all seahorses, that's why they do that, to synchronize their reproductive systems and kind of talk without talking really.
0: Yeah. How many, okay. And first of all, what do you say? There's like an argument. I feel like some people in the scientific community would disagree that seahorse, like the males give birth. Does, it, does that make sense? Have you ever heard people like with, with that argument? Like, cause there's some people who say, well, technically the female, you know what I mean? Deposits the eggs well, and.
1: Yeah. I mean the male, the male seahorse really is truly considered pregnant because sure. like when the female, she, is take, she transfers those unfertilized eggs, Mm -hmm. he fertilizes them as they go into his pouch. And then once they're in the pouch, his pouch closes. Um, So actually that's why the male gets pregnant is because he knows every single baby in his pouch is his. There's no, in nature often males might be kind of that the female may mate with a couple of different males. And that's why males don't tend to put so much effort into raising young as the seahorse because He knows every baby is his in his pouch and he is guarding them so he knows that no one else has had any opportunity to like like a cooker you know like getting in there and putting an animal that you're raising someone else's baby he knows Mm -hmm. that's not happening so um they in his pouch he's got lots of blood vessels in there giving like energy and food and oxygen and stuff and then he so like it's really is truly a pregnancy but yeah i know what you mean it kind of could technically be the females making the eggs and stuff, but I, that's not so much really with the seahorses.
0: There's so much going on in this tiny pygmy seahorse. How many eggs can he carry? I mean, do we even know? They're so minuscule.
1: Yeah, I saw um, between half a dozen and a dozen.
0: Okay, babies. so not as many as I thought. I thought there would be hundreds. So no, just half a dozen to a dozen. The big, the big
1: seahorses that I was talking about—they can have like a thousand pry. Okay. Um, so it's different. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Because they're so teeny tiny. Sure.
0: Yeah. Sure. So they could have half a dozen to a dozen, and I'm sure you've witnessed some births, which I could only imagine. Like how tiny. I mean, how they just. Oh my god! I bet it's the coolest thing to see a male give birth.
1: Yeah. Well, that was when like being a photographer as well helped because this is all happening in the wild and like often because they're giving birth often when there's currents running so that those babies get swept out to sea and they spend some time in the plankton. They like it if the current's running, but that's not very helpful for me trying to do all this stuff (laughs) when there's a crazy current, in addition to hovering without touching anything, also recording all my data. And, you know, the pygmy seahorse adult is one is two centimeters long. So Mm -hmm. um, I was trying to take still photos as well to record um, you know, data basically, because I can capture the image, and I did manage to capture some shots of those teeny teeny tiny little babies coming out, but they mm. do look like like in now, having looked at my pictures, I can see that they're tiny seahorses, they've got the snout and the tail and the belly, they're just dark in color and tiny um but I couldn't have done that without being able to take photos of that,
0: wow. That is so. Oh my god, that is amazing. So you'd say were those some of your favorite animals you studied, or would you say you prefer the slugs and the parasites?
1: <laughs> I definitely, I definitely have a soft spot for the pygmy seahorses. Yeah, no, they they've been incredible, and there's so much more to know. So there's there are the eight species, um, mm-hmm. and four of them aren't even have been. Um, looked at by the IUCN red list to see whether they're endangered or not. Um, three of them are data deficient. So, you know, seven of the eight, we really don't know enough about to know if they're under a threat or what dangers they have or threats or anything. So, yeah, that's just the tip of the iceberg really to learn more.
0: Yeah. And as we wrap up this interview and I I didn't want to ask you this in the beginning, because sometimes it could be so incredibly depressing. But I mean, coral reefs are disappearing all around the world can we just go into that really quick with coral bleaching
1: yeah i mean it, it is terrifying i'm young i'm well i call i say i'm young i'm 40 now but so i've been diving 25 years nearly um and i've definitely seen reefs change in that time and i think that's kind of sobering really um coral bleaching is is really a is devastating coral reefs and i've seen that with my own eyes um coral bleaching is Um, You know, I was talking about those tiny jellyfish and they have those algae within their cells that use the sun's light. Um, Coral bleaching happens when water's warm and it only needs to be a degree or two degrees Celsius above the average for that time of year. Um, And then chemical reactions start stressing out the the algae within the cells. So they just leave um, and that leaves the coral. The the algae is the brownish color that gives the coral its color. Um, So bleaching leaves the coral pure white ghostly white like a piece of paper Um, but that can happen to every coral on a whole coral reef Um, and they're not necessarily dead at that point they can continue to feed but like i said they come out at night and those little tentacles catch plankton and stuff Um, so they can keep doing that for a little while but they do need those algae to come back into their cells and if they don't then they die Um, so the big first bleaching event that happened around there was a global bleaching event happened in uh, the late 90s. And that killed one-six percent of all hard corals in the world. Wow. And that's just one. And we've since had two more bleaching events. Um, and it, yeah, it's, it's terrifying. But not just, you know, there's a lot of other threats as well, but coral bleaching probably is the biggest. Um, something that really hit me recently is um, I was diving in this place called Chendawasi Bay, mm-hmm. um, which is on the very north coast of the island of New Guinea um in the middle of nowhere i mean divers have hardly visited here scientists have hardly visited here um and i was looking at this chandawasi butterfly fish which are a beautiful disc shape like a biscuit size a oh, biscuit being i don't know what what's a biscuit you dip in your tea
0: oh um, those that, are like, those uh, like a cookie those are called like the, a those b- cookie those That's are called I mean. biscottis on delta airlines Okay, well, that size. <laughs>
1: anyway, we 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 call biscuits like cookies or whatever. Okay. Anyway, so I was looking at one of those. It had only been named in two thousand and twelve. Wow! And I was looking at it, um, and it was brooding its eggs on a plastic bottle. Oh! And I'm like, I'm in the middle of nowhere, absolutely in the middle of nowhere, and I'm looking at a species we only just discovered, amongst there's millions more we don't know exist. And I'm looking at this animal that's already, you know, this is how we're affecting it. And it's just devastating to see that. So yeah, that's, I think that's kind of what I want to do is just share some of this, what's happening in the oceans and some of the amazing creatures that are out there to just give a bit more empathy to, you know, it's not, there's not just plenty more fish in the sea, there's, there's more to it than that sort of thing.
0: What could someone living, let's say, in the middle of Idaho, like me, do to help the oceans?
1: Well, I really think it's all about each and every one of us just being conscious of what we consume and mm-hmm. how we do. It. I mean, be aware and conscious of what seafood you, you eat. If you eat seafood like um, bottom trawling, um, which is when huge nets go across the the bottom of the ocean that is a huge threat for seahorses not not so much pygmy seahorses Um, but they just dredge up the whole bottom all of the those organisms like corals and gorgonians get flattened Um, and yearly um, an area twice the size of continental us is is trawled like that Um, Mm -hmm. so that just homogenizes and destroys these habitats Um, it's just incredible so be aware like i don't eat prawns shrimps um because the prawns or shrimps are collected in that way or they're farmed which usually also happens in an inshore environment which should also be where you're getting seahorses naturally so it's also changing the habitat there um but also you know like not avoiding fast fashion be conscious of where your meat comes from use Mm. good sources that's not felling the amazon um and just we can all make our impact through uh, like with our feet and how we live our lives really i think that's the best thing we can do
0: yes and if you're listening do not buy those stupid horrific dried up seahorses at souvenir shops
1: no definitely don't do that no <laughs> yeah do that. they are protected now so they probably are um captive bred to be fair but still We don't need dried seahorses in our lives.
0: No, that's disgusting. Go, yeah, watch, watch a, watch a documentary, or you know, pick up, pick up this book right here, "The World Beneath." Um, Okay, so can you leave us with something? I want to ask you, what is your favorite seahorse fact? A fun fact.
1: Gosh, that's an impossible question. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. i think it's just incredible all that stuff i explained that that happens it's all every incredible. day in the ocean yeah and we didn't know yeah and i think it's just amazing that like i've named two new species of them one from japan one from south africa we didn't know they were even in the indian ocean until last year you know yeah. that's that's what's incredible is there's so much more still and will there'll be more species for them to discover that's what gets me out of bed
0: Absolutely. Uh, Dr. Richard Smith, thank you so much for coming on the show. How can my listeners find you?
1: Um, You can check out my website, which is ocean realm images. Um, I'm on Instagram, Dr. Dr. Richard Smith. And yeah. Yeah come check me out and have a chat
0: yes and please 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 order this book the world beneath the life and times of unknown sea creatures and coral reefs it is visual it is beautiful maybe don't do what i did and get it all wet with salt water but hey i was <laughs> uh i honestly i was like this is the perfect book to bring to a coral reef i really? <laughs> it was yeah. amazing man so i it, it's very uh, surreal talking to you because i've been reading this i can't uh yeah this is great can't wait to pass this book along. Will you hang out with us in the after show? The after party?
1: Absolutely, yeah.
0: Okay, maybe we could have some biscuits and tea. That sounds such a lame English <laughs> joke. I am so sorry. How embarrassing. <laughs> all right. And if you want to check out the after show, all you have to do is head on over to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash animals to the max to hear the after show. But with that said, thank you so much. I appreciate it.